to the sixth episode of season three of the Northern Spin podcast and a particularly warm welcome to all our new listeners who picked up the news about this podcast in Rome at the weekend. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest and here's my happy, clappy co-presenter, Chris Maguire, who, as ever, has got some only good news. Yeah, thank you, Michael. As you know, I do like good news. I'm also the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. As you know, Northern Spin has been riding high in the European podcast charts. We've been big in Belgium, we've been big in France, we've been big in Bahrain, and now we are big in Italy. So, Michael, where have you been on your holiday? Yeah, I've been to Rome for the weekend. Um, <laughs> I didn't listen to Northern Spin while I was there, but I spoke to lots of people in the group that I was over there with who were really interested in it. So, Roger, Tom, Jerry... Claire, if you're listening, hope you're enjoying it. No, good news indeed. Uh, now, I've got some serious good news as well, actually, because uh, in addition to our sponsors, Oscar and Lily Shibben, who sponsored us for a long time now, we've got a third sponsor on board. Uh, welcome to Masterbase tech firm, Red Flag Alert. We'll be hearing a bit more about them later. That's great news. Well done, Chris. Of course, Nicola Hedlam, who took part in our budget special last week, is the Chief Economist and Head of Public Sector at Red Flag Alert. So I'm delighted to have them on board. Uh, but what's on the agenda today, Chris? We'll talk about your friend, Andy Burnham. He is, in my view, the most powerful man in the North after the budget handed him a huge um, tick up in his devolution powers. What's going to take a deep dive on the media and provide some insight both nationally and regionally. I'm also going to talk about Boris Johnson, your friend of mine. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the media because um, last week there was some bad news as well, which is which is very sad. And I think it's something that we need to mention. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the media because last week one of our regional publishers, Reach PLC, announced job cuts that will um, cut out more than 400 journalists and put them at the risk of redundancy. That's obviously a big worry for them, and it's a big worry for communities. I think newspapers, local media outlets, be it on a website or whatever, provide a really useful, um, a really useful output. And yeah, that's that's something to worry about. And what they've done is they've put like 400 jobs at risk. They reckon 192 journalist jobs could go. Now, 192 journalist jobs from what is already a thin group of journalists is a real worry. And all that does is just waters down the quality of journalism that goes out there. But um, we've got some thank yous, as always. Yes, we definitely have got some thank yous, starting with What Media, our expert producers of this podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they sprinkle that magic stardust every week to turn our ramblings into the hit podcast that it is. So thank you. What media? Also, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Also, thanks for our sponsors, Oscar Technology, Lily Shippen, and of course, the one I've just mentioned, Red Flag Alert. As always, we'll talk about Lily Shippen and Red Flag Alert uh, on parts two and three. I'll just start by talking about Oscar, who are growing all over the world. They share our commitment to integrity, which is so important. Um, we do get approached by sponsors who we turn down because they don't fit into what we want out of our sponsors. Every week, Oscar produces a conveyor belt of good news stories. For example, check out their new LinkedIn account for their video of their Oscar energy team in Austin in Texas. I love the way they've done that as well. Oscar also hold regular social code events and Lauren Gibson, product manager at UK Tote Group, will be speaking at their next event in Manchester on April the 27th. Oscar is an award-winning recruitment consultancy delivering talent across tech, digital, life sciences, energy and construction. I always like to give a quick shout out to a new listener as well. Um, and I spoke to Isabel Patton. She's a formidable lady, actually. She's at UA92. I'm doing an event there this week. She's an amazing lady and uh, she loves the podcast so thank you very much to izzy and uh, thank you very much to our new listeners so chris we touched on this a little bit in our budget coverage on thursday last week with nicola headlam i think it's worthy of further discussion as we've all had a chance to devour over the weekend um a little bit more about the deep 
devolution deal that Andy Burnham did with, and, and Andy Street did in the Midlands as well, with the government that was announced in last week's budget. Why is Andy Burnham now the most powerful person in the North? Well, whenever Wasn't you... already? Yeah, well, whenever you do... Well, once upon a time, actually, I uh, when I produced a list of the most powerful people in Manchester, I did a piece on LinkedIn to say that I thought Gary Neville was after what he did to uh, stop the, uh, the, the new Super League. But, but in terms of Andy Burnham... When you saw the budget coverage, inevitably it focused on things like childcare, it focused on tax rates, it focused on, you know, closing that uh, and abolishing the, the limit on your pension. Um, but but what it didn't do a lot of, it didn't talk about the devolution deal. And that's why I think we need to talk about it as well, because it is such a massive uh, shot in the arm for Andy Burnham and, and fans of devolution. I've gone on record before to say that... Um, I thought Andy Burnham would leave his role as um, Greater Manchester Mayor and I thought he'd go back to Westminster when Labour got into power. I don't think like that anymore. Right, so can I smell a U-turn here? I wouldn't say it's an out-and-out U-turn and if I was a uh, politician, I would deny it was a U-turn completely, but it's yes and no. Um, last week's devolution deal unveiled in the budget um, a complete change in the landscape for Burnham and West Midlands Mayor Andy Street. Basically, the self-styled King of the North has been given everything he wanted but I think it's important for the benefit of our listeners just to look at some of the powers he's been granted. So Greater Manchester will have more powers over transport, housing and technical education. For the first time, the city region will effectively be treated like a government department with Mayor Andy Burnham given full control over a huge pot of finance. It means also that buses, trams and local trains could be brought under one public transport system, similar to London's, similar livery as well. So this B network, the yellow and uh, yellow and black, transport system across trains, buses, bikes, taxis. That's something, the optics of which uh, Andy Burnham's been in favour of for quite a long time. Greater Manchester will also be able to create the country's first integrated technical education system, giving leaders, giving leaders more influence over the local labour market. What else? Yeah, yeah, it's just a long list. The government's also pledged to give the city region more financial freedom in future with a single settlement to the uh, to be agreed for several years. That's so important because what they've complained about for a long time is they get these these settlements, but you know they keep having to go back to the pot. They've got no financial security because it doesn't last many years. But they're going to say to them, look. This is, you're going to give them more ability themselves to handle their own finances for a longer period of time. Put simply, what it does, it gives Labour, the, it gives the Labour Mayor, but also Andy Street, it gives them the freedom to spend the money Greater Manchester gets uh, from the government according to their priorities and not the government's. Now, the payback, of course, is that Andy Burnham and the 10 council leaders will be more accountable. The reason this is so important is this is what Andy Burnham's been demanding for a long time, and this is the reason why I don't think he'll walk away from his role as Greater Manchester Mayor to go back to Westminster, because he's got what he always wanted. Now, I think your mate, Andy Burnham, is now the most important man in the North. I exclude ourselves from that. I also think, as I said earlier, it, it squashes the idea that he'll ever return to Westminster. Do you agree? Well, your mate, for those of you not watching on YouTube, is me rolling my eyes at that. So you describe Boris Johnson as your mate, and then you describe Andy no, Boris Burnham Johnson's as not my your mate. mate. No, 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 you do. No, you say not, to me, mate. your mate Boris Johnson. Okay. And then you say your mate Andy Burnham. Yeah, now, you know I quite like Andy and I've worked with him and in you the hate, past. And you, you hate Boris. And I don't, I don't hate anyone, but I don't like Boris Johnson. So you need, what is it? Is okay, it, no, I'd like which to, one's my mate? Okay, which your mate it? is Andy Burnham, um, your nemesis and the person <laughs> that we both dislike for the sake of, uh, you know, for, for full disclosure, 
is uh, Boris Johnson. Okay, so the semantics of the use of the phrase your mate okay. has now taken up far okay. too much time. No, but seriously, Chris, I do want to look a little bit closer at the accountability issue and the, as, as Jeremy Hunt described it, enhanced approach to accountability. So London's mayor is scrutinised by an elected London Assembly. The Metro mayors thus far are pretty much autonomous single bodies with no opposition. There's no shadow mayor. There's no shadow cabinet. There's no alternative government holding them to account. Um, So what we've got now is a super scrutiny committee to act as a check and balance on policy as a result of some work that Clive Mehmet from Greater Manchester Chamber had done. Because let's one thing just to reverse back on as well, local government, councillors in particular, they're really badly paid. They hardly get any money, which is why there's a real imbalance towards retired people who can do it in their spare time just to keep them ticking over and keep them active in civ- civic life. Um, and they weren't able, in many instances, to claim expenses for going to these high supposedly high-performing scrutiny committees to hold a very powerful politician to account like Andy Burnham. That's changed, and they are going to get recompense for doing that. So hopefully, being the chair of the Greater Manchester Scrutiny Committee will be a much-coveted, sought-after role, and it has to be an opposition politician. It has to be a Lib Dem or a Tory. Mm. So it could be someone like John Leach, who's a massive pain in the backside on the Manchester City Council, given he's only one of two or three Liberal Democrats. Could be a green councillor, actually. Mm. So, you know, that's um, that's up for grabs. As a condition of the deal, Andy Burnham and the portfolio holders for each of the 10 policy areas have committed to attending, and this is quite quite um, quite a lot of scrutiny, um, a council meeting in each borough of uh, Greater Manchester in the course of a year, so 10 council meetings, hold a mayor's question time around the boroughs, chaired by an independent person. And here he is, Chris, here's a job opportunity for you. It could be a local journalist or business person. So it could be me or you. It could, well, we could have a fight yeah. off, couldn't we? I, I Just put it out there. I'd be really up for that. Would you not be, um, given your background as standing as a Labour candidate in the 2015 election, would that not rule you out? I'm just saying that's the organisers because I've never stood for a public office. So I'm a probably... journalist now. So d- d- does, does having ever done anything in politics rule me out of anything? Um, I, I, would, I would be fairly... Yeah, I'd be ultra professional if I was asked to do it, and I'm sure I'm sure you would too. Yeah, I, despite I, but... you being a self-declared small C conservative. <laughs> no, they can be quite prickly about things like that, actually. Some yeah, of the, uh, the inner sanctum, but no, it wouldn't bother me, and I would uh, I would do it fairly. And uh, anyway, the other things they're after doing are pa- parliamentary style select committees. Um, or or being invited to go and give evidence to a parliamentary committee, a GMC overview and scrutiny committee to present reports with their portfolio. And here's the real crunch as well. Maybe in recognition of the new local economic strategy and the powers that are being given and the idea that local enterprise partnerships are pretty much being phased out and replaced by something called a GM strategy board, there'll also be a role for Greater Manchester MPs to me, that was a direct sop to Tory MPs like Chris Clarkson, James Daly, in the outer boroughs of Greater Manchester, in Bury North and Haywood and Middleton, or William Rag down in Hazel Grove, or Mary Robinson in Cheadle. Tory MPs who want to give Andy Burnham a hard time now that he's got all this uh, this extra power. What do you think? Well, I agree with your analysis. Uh, I think it 
I think Andy Burnham recognises that with greater power comes greater scrutiny as well. And I think what you'll see is you will see a bit of point scoring um, when you have those that level of scrutiny moving forward. But I don't think it's, I think it's a price worth paying and Andy Burnham recognises that as well. I think what's important is to recognise how far Andy Burnham's relationships come in recent months. So he obviously clashed with your non-friend and my non-friend Boris Johnson's government over the tier system during COVID. Uh, Liz Truss, remember her, called um, Burnham a miserablest mayor in the leadership campaign. That was just a that was just to try to appease her uh, the conservative membership. Um, he's a much he's got a much better relationship. He's got a grown up relationship with Rishi Sunak. I think the key person is the uh, Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove. I think Michael Gove gets it. I think it's, what's important is that there's this sort of tacit acceptance that the Tories have only got eighteen months left in power and. You know, Labour have already committed to devolution moving forward. That's why this is ring fenced. I just look at Andy Burnham. Um, Andy Burnham is authentic. He's he's just been on a high profile trip to the US. We spoke about it briefly on last week's podcast, um, the budget special. He spoke on uh, live American TV. He, he he's he's been endorsed by Mike Bloomberg on Twitter. He had a meeting with the mayor of New York, Eric Adams. I mean, these are big things. This is the sort of thing that the mayor of London does. He's making sure Manchester's got a place at the top table. Now, Andy Burnham has been tweeting a lot recently. Recently, his brother, who's a teacher, his school's just got an outstanding Ofsted report and also Everton got a cheeky little 2-2 draw against Chelsea. So he's been prolific on Twitter, on Twitter. but he did tweet his thanks uh, to Michael Gove and the following up um, levelling up minister, Deanna Davison. He said, this is a good deal of Greater Manchester. The thing about Andy Burnham, and I think he's always been like this, he gets the value of cross-party politics. He gets the fact that he's got to work with uh, the likes of Michael Gove and Deanna Davison as well. And the, the benefit is what you're seeing in this devolution deal. It's the opposite of Teesside Tory Mayor Ben blocker houchin who just doesn't want to engage with, with opposition uh, parties. Um, do you think Andy Burnham has taken his game to a new level? I think he's been given the powers that have given him the opportunity to take it to a new level. I think there's going to be a lot of emphasis now on delivery because there's, uh, there's a lot expected of these powers that he's been very successful in campaigning for. Um, I agree with you about working cross-party. I think he's always reached out to, you know, he's got in his cabinet the uh, the Tory leader of Bolton and Mark Hunter, the Lib Dem leader of Stockport in his cabinet. He doesn't treat them any differently. He invites them along to meetings before the, the political leaders' meetings before the full GMCA in view of the uh, view of the public. He's uh, after he won his first election, he invited Sean Anstey to be one of his deputy mayors for for skills because he recognised that Sean had great reach and talent and was a very ta- uh, uh, an excellent politician, even though he'd obviously been in his opponent through a uh, through a you know a fairly feisty leadership election. So yeah, I think he's done well. I must rem- must forget I mustn't forget. Um, when Richard Leese was commenting about the whole race to become the mayor of Greater Manchester, he didn't put himself forward, which people were surprised about at the time. And he said he didn't want to do it because it was just a PR role standing on the end of red carpets. And he said he only reluctantly agreed to the establishment of the role of mayor as a price to pay for the deregulation of the buses. I think actually he's proved it all wrong. So he's done the whole red carpet thing and visiting America. And he's very, very good at that sort of thing. Um, you know, hanging out with Kamala Harris's husband and, and all that sort of stuff. What they call the first gentleman. Yeah. Who yeah. apparently is a Man United fan and a New Order fan. So, Well, I mean, one out of two. I mean, Andy Burnham will like the New Order. I think New Order. I think didn't Andy Burnham go to a concert at New well, Order? New Order were, were performing at South by Southwest when wow. they launched the uh, Beyond the Music Festival as well. So, yeah. So the, 
the challenge now is is not is two things. It's delivery, but it's also the onward momentum of devolution. So I was in Rome last week on a on a weekend break, and I happily paid a fourteen euro tourist tax on top of my hotel bill. This week, Carlisle MP John Stevenson, chairs the Northern Research Group of Backbench Tories, said the important principle of devolving taxes, such taxes, such as business rates and council tax, as well as introducing a tourism levy, could be a huge win for Cumbria and the Lake District and would be a significant step forward. So that's the opportunity for more fiscal devolution, for more powers to be going and more money and, uh, and creation of new taxes. But with that comes potentially unpopularity as we found out with the clean air tax. Nobody wanted to pay it and there's an open revolt and everybody backed down really quickly. So that's the nature of the powers. And the government have said that there are other deals that could follow, but I frankly can't see Lancashire and Cheshire getting that level of power anytime soon. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I spend a lot of time holding events across the north. I live in Lancashire. I'm passionate about Lancashire. The thing is, is that um, I hosted a couple of events recently and we were talking about Andy Burnham. And the thing is, the government are talking about there being more devolution deals. For there to be proper devolution, there's got to be an infrastructure in place that can support the decision-making process. Now, if you look at Andy Burnham, when he became the mayor, there was this infrastructure already in place. There's a Greater Manchester Combined Authority, GMCA, which is made up of the 10 Greater Manchester Local Authorities. That was preceded by AGMA, the Association of Greater Manchester Authorities. Have you been reading my thesis? Uh, I read it, actually. I read it every night when I'm struggling to sleep, Michael. Um, Now, if you compare and contrast that with what happened when uh, Steve Rodman became the Metro Mayor of Liverpool, he literally had, and Steve, if you want to come on the show and uh, tell us what you literally had, one man and a phone uh, and not much else. There wasn't the support that exists behind Andy Burnham as well. I was talking about Lancashire again, and I raised it with a couple of people in the know, and I said... You know, there's a lot of pressure. Michael Gove spoke about it at the event, the convention recently in the north in Manchester about Lancashire getting their act together in terms of devolution. There is absolutely zero zilcho appetite for a, uh, a metro mayor in, uh, in 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 Lancashire. And one thing that I was told as well that that in Lancashire that if there is an elected mayor, it won't be a politician; it will be a business person because because of the fragmented nature of Lancashire. So I think. It's great what Greater Manchester are doing. It's great what Andy Street's doing in the West Midlands as well. I think Leeds are doing some really good things as well. But I don't think you're going to see this rollout of real genuine devolution. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. I don't know why you say that. I, 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 I trust you that you've... Uh... That's on that's on good authority, but why why do you think it'll be a business person? This often gets touted around about who the next mayor of of anywhere is going to be, and it always ends up being a politician. In in the exception of Andy Street, who had to become a politician, because that's they're, they're the people who've got the ground game. They've got the people who deliver leaflets, put party political broadcasts together, and effectively run a campaign that's going to win over a majority of the electorate. I think it could be. I think it could be a business person and a politician combined, i.e., somebody whose history, like Andy Street is in business mm. um but but i don't think it will be a real you know a really high profile business person a sort of high profile politician um at least that was the view that i heard from people in the note it's okay. just an opinion yeah sure um the other thing as well in the um in the small print of the budget is they don't have to be called mayors in the future for these devolution deals. Because if that's become a sticking point that lancashire or cheshire or wherever else doesn't want one they can actually be called governors Mm. or directly elected leaders. And I think maybe that's what they're driving towards. The trouble is with Lancashire is Blackpool and Blackburn aren't part of Lancashire County Council. It's just a really strange situation. Um, I mean, I think the networks and the mature institutions of GM, as you obviously 
read my thesis and yeah. you found out, coupled with a retail politician who knows how to work the media very well and work the public very well, who's used his convening power really effectively, is of a different order that anybody in Lancashire, be it a business person or a politician, would be capable of doing in order to just get a few quid to tart up Preston. You mentioned about talking about Lancashire and a politician or a business person. You couldn't see a Grant Berry doing what Andy Burnham's done. In Lancashire, because he would alienate Jake Berry. Jake, Jake Berry sorry, yeah. he, 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 he desperately would wants to do it. You know, he would alienate huge swathes of Lancashire. Um, yeah, he would. I'd, well, anyway, so what are we going to talk about next? Well, I want to talk about the media. I want to talk about the media on lots of different levels as well. And we're not just going to do a rehash of, uh, you know, the Home Secretary Suella Braverman. You call her Corella Braverman. Um, and a high-profile trip to Rwanda. Was that wrong to do so? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, I think that's the view of a lot of people as well. Uh, she she went to Rwanda at the weekend. You went to Rome. She went to Rwanda. That's part of her plan to tackle um, immigration and to tackle the small boats problem in particular. Now, what I found really interesting and slightly disturbing is that a number of national publications and TV stations, uh, like the Guardian, BBC, I think Daily Mirror, iNewspaper, they weren't invited because they're seen as being pretty negative towards the government and this plan in particular. Particular. Now, by comparison, journalists from the more supportive uh, right wing of, of, of the media, yeah, GB News, the Daily Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, they were invited. And you saw the headlines on the front page. Um, you, you saw a lot of negativity on social media, partly because I think, you know, people kicked back at uh, some of the images that came out. I think it's worth explaining as well. And that is what I think we will need to try and do with, with our podcast, Northern Spin, is the partisan nature of the national press. So before we talk about why we think this approach to Braverman's trip is so worrying, just discuss the partisan nature of our national media. Well, obviously, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the T Telegraph and the Times are pretty much Tory newspapers. The Daily Mirror is a Labour paper and the Guardian is in a kind of a mushy, liberal, green, socialist blob somewhere in the middle. And they reflect that. The BBC doesn't. I thought it was more alarming that she wouldn't invite the BBC, but she'd invite Gammon Britain News, yeah. which um, I've, I don't watch. I see clips of it occasionally. It looks absolutely dreadful. And um, But, I mean, you... What I will say is despite Suella Braverman taking the client media with her to Rwanda, the enduring image, the coverage that everybody will remember is her insisting to the press that the European courts will back down, which all the client media dutifully reported. But that terrible photo of her laughing her head off outside a detention camp and describing it as like a bit like centre parks, she sounds absolutely deranged. I know. But so it's not a good idea to go take in... Because it's on, it's only going to hack off the people that you don't take, and and you get found out eventually. How can you? How can you? It's not like it used to be about embedding the, your favoured media in a war zone. People do have the ability using social media to be able to take apart nonsense like that. I, I think I think that I, I think she and I'm not here to defend Suella Braverman, but. Um, I thought some of the treatment of that picture, the way it was cropped, the way it was then, uh, I heard that it was like superimposed on Auschwitz and stuff like that, that particular No, no, image. no, you're, you're, no, Chris, no, that's not fair. You're, you're conflating two completely different things. And I'm 100% with you that superimposing a picture of against Auschwitz is bang out of order. But the simple factual picture of her outside this detention centre laughing, she didn't have the political smarts to realise that 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 was always going to be a potential and, and got caught out. 
Where I think it shows how bad she is at politics. Well, where I think where I think she doesn't play the game is if she decides that she only wants the right wing press there. The difference is you might have got away with that ten years ago, but you won't get away with it with social media because no. social media no, will so expose on, it. You give us the insight. You used to work at the Daily Mail. Yeah, I spent two years at the Daily Mail. I, I'm old school, and I really am old school. I believe that the role of the media is to report the news rather than give their complete interpretation. So the Daily Mail is a good example of a paper uh, with their own agenda. I'm a, uh, you know, the key figure is and was and still is Paul Dake. He was the editor for a long, long time. I think he's the editor-in-chief of the, the Daily Mail group, DMG Media. Now, the Daily Mail is is unashamedly right-wing in simple terms. You know, they don't like you if you're an asylum seeker. They don't like you if you're on benefits. They don't like you if you're pro-Europe. I mean, if they want to come on the show and uh, defend that, they can. And, and the reason is because they know who their readership is and they think their readership is Middle England. So they are looking to appease their, their reader. We spoke recently about the outrageous coverage you were uh, apoplectic about the murder of the Epsom College head teacher uh, Emma Patterson, and uh, I think the headline was whether a high flying career made her husband feel inadequate, which is outrageous. They have this approach that they'll just try to cause controversy um, all the time. I don't like it. Now, you have to understand the deeper politics because this is the big worry. Okay, the Daily Mail has been much more sympathetic of Boris Johnson regarding Partygate than huge other swathes of the media. Um, but if you think a second, hang on a minute, Boris Johnson uh, is 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 reported to have recommended Dacre for a peerage in his resignation honours list, which apparently has been pared back to about 60 from 100. Um, so then you have to question the motives of the media. You know, is the reason the Daily Mail is giving Boris Johnson an easy ride because Paul Dacre wants a peerage? He's 74 and he's been turned down before. If that's the case, you then question the motives of the media for reporting stuff in the first place. And then that becomes a race to the bottom. I mean, we're recording this on Tuesday morning. On Wednesday at two o'clock, when this podcast comes out, it's due to be interrogated in Parliament over whether he misled Parliament over Partygate, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, I slightly disagree with you about reporting the news. I think that would be fairly boring, and I don't think you actually... I don't think you really mean that. I think there's a dangerous drift in this country about the sanctity of what they call impartiality, as if it's some kind of holy grail that must preserve an unattainable truth. The BBC, just to return to last week's discussion, used to have what they termed under the leadership of John Burr, a mission to explain. That can be uncomfortable for some people. Emily Maitlis, for example, was explaining why Dominic Cummings was in trouble, but they didn't like it the way that she described it. This idea that you make news judgments, what you know, what leads the news that day, what comes, you know, what, what, what your running order is, what how you write a story, all of those are judge are judgments that you make as a journalist in in wherever you've been, whether a local newspaper, a website, or on the BBC, or even in the Daily Mail, every single decision that you make is governed by a set of values. Now, those values could be rigid impartiality and just reporting the facts, but I put it to you that that'd be a pretty dull way of actually reporting the news. Um, I write stories for the business desk based on a set of values that the business desk has that we're constantly looking to, to define and redefine as we will be doing with a team away day on Friday in whatever context, newspapers, magazines, including the ones that you've written for and edited, are governed by the same principle. So I don't get, I don't get the idea 
that um, you just report the news. I'm not just suggesting the facts. I'm not suggesting you've got to provide context. Yeah, you do have to provide context as well. And I'm not suggesting your some, audience. some sanitized version of what the story is. My argument is that when the interpretation distorts what the truth is, you go to a lot of football matches. You watch your beloved Blackburn Rovers. Okay, you can watch a game and then you can read a match report from the journalist and think I must have been at a different game. So what you might find, for example, is just say the police, and I'm just coming up with easy easy figures. Just say they have a, th- a million crimes and they solve nine hundred thousand of those crimes. Now one media might report it as police solve nine out of ten crimes you know and that might be up from eight out of ten crimes another media organization will say you know one hundred thousand crimes go unsolved in greater manchester you know so it's all about interpretation there was one recently with gary neville where they were talking about hotel football and they reported on losses that the uh, that the hotel football had made and it was like losses you know deepen at hotel football he took to twitter and said well hang on a minute here's a different interpretation of this story Everybody was paid during COVID. We didn't. Uh, we didn't. We didn't get rid of any members of staff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that's a huge achievement. So I'm not saying newspapers shouldn't have an editorial approach and put their own version of it. I'm just saying it shouldn't be at the expense of the truth. Well, sometimes just pr- just making the judgment that you do every Friday to just print good news is printing a version of the truth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because that's your values. That's the the values that drive you to make those editorial decisions. But I think on Friday, I think what you want to try and do is just highlight positive news. If I was to do that every day and not hold people to account, I would agree with you. So you agree with me that uh, news cannot be. divorce from values it's interesting actually because i've always thought about becoming a politician and then what would happen is i'd get pesky journalists like you trying to trip me up um i think i think you have to make a statement i make my statement with my good news blog on a friday but it can't be at the expense of holding people to account you know throughout the rest of the week Okay, so you want to give a shout out now, don't you, to um, Helen Pidd from The Guardian? The yes, she's the uh, absolutely fantastic journalist as well. Um, don't get her talking about uh, trains, though. She uh, she really doesn't like them at all. So last week, there was a woman in Barrow called Eleanor Williams was jailed for eight and a half years for falsely claiming she was raped by multiple men and trafficked by an Asian grooming gang. I mean, this is a massively controversial subject and a massively um, emotive subject as well. She, she posted photos on social media of her, it turns out now, self-inflected injuries, self-inflicted injuries. It was seized upon by the far right. I mean, Tommy Robinson, you know, jumped on a jumped in a car and drove up the M6. Um, she, uh, tens of thousands of pounds were raised. I think there was a GoFund campaign. Residents of Barrow were putting up Justice for Ellie posters and the image they used were purple elephants in support of her. Restaurants that found themselves at the subject of, of these false accusations suddenly found, you know, the bottom dropped out of their business. Um, men had their lives turned upside down by these false allegations. Several tried to take their own lives now the guardian editor helen pitt did a brilliant job she followed the case for three years um she did a wonderful podcast actually on the guardian last week where where she spoke to some of these people who'd been accused falsely of rape i don't think uh, the worry is that like incidents like this are fairly rare thankfully It, it should never be used to undermine genuine cases and that's the that's the concern that people have made that that it'll stop people coming forward or that they won't be believed but but in this case it was just it was just tragic and it was what was what was awful was the way these this these social media allegations were picked up and they were just sent around the world and people believed them straight away. Yeah, people believe what they want to believe sometimes, don't they? Again, it just anything that fits in their own narrative about the way the world works against people like them. A harrowing case, frankly, and if ever there's an argument for resisting the push of social media and subjecting Facebook to the same rules as the rest of the media, then there you have it in a nutshell. And on that note, we're going to go to our first break.
Welcome back to Northern Spin. Now, I've interviewed loads of chief execs, MDs, business leaders during my career, and the role of a good personal assistant or executive assistant is absolutely critical. So when it comes to making those big decisions, a lot of them use their PA or, or their EA as a sounding board. That's right. That's where Lily Shippen come in. They're a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. They've got bases in Manchester and London. Lily Shippen recruit a range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many more. The key with HR isn't just a question of appointing great people, but knowing when to recruit them as well. And that's what Lily Shippen do, whether it's an MD, CEO, or business leader. The name to remember is this, Lily Shippen. Now, in a minute, we're going to be discussing our on manoeuvres section, but there are a couple of regional stories we need to discuss first in the bit that we call Anything to See Here. Absolutely. We've got different names for every section of this podcast. Now, last week, the government announced, uh, and once again, it came, it was mentioned in the budget when you look in the detail, they found some money at the back of the sofa and they've handed out millions of pounds to 13 northern areas that previously missed out on the recent levelling up fund. There was lots of controversy over that. Uh, These are the so-called near-miss projects. Um, I'm going to mention a couple. Bootle Town Centre Transformation, the Marple Active Communities Hub, which I'm sure you'll be interested in, and Rosendale Powering and Unlocking Sustainable Growth. Now, I think this is the government responding to the criticism from a lot of their own northern MPs who are very unhappy about being snubbed by the levelling up fund too. Anything to see here, Michael? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot to see here. I think it's a continuation of that uh, dishing out of uh, begging bowl money. I think we said at the time it was a grotesque parade and uh, and I stand by it. I also suspected at the time that the new library and swimming pool proposal, which is a really good one put together by a cracked team of officers at Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council, was a really good one. Uh, It was robust, it had impact, it replaces something that's there, it releases a bit of old land for a potential residential use where the old swimming bath was, but it had fallen down the list of priorities. And I suspect partly because William Rag, our local MP, has fallen out with the government. Um, maybe the Tories see potential electoral advantage on that, but they're going to have to keep up because already the press releases have been firing out from the Liberal Democrats in Stockport who've wasted no time in claiming it as a victory for them, delivering for local people all year round, hashtag winning here. Okay, hashtag well done, the Liberal Dems. No, well, they had nothing to do with it. The yeah. original bid was submitted under a Labour administration. Yeah. Um, anyway. By officers who were, new, who were politically neutral. I, I knew, I knew that would get you fired up. Um, something else that was largely missed in the budget coverage was the announcement around investment zones now. Investment zones were much heralded by uh, Liz Trust. They're called Hunt. innovation zones now, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, are they called innovation? I yes. mean, have they got rid of the title investment zones? I think any reference to anything that Liz Truss ever said has been, uh, yeah. you know, has been airbrushed out of uh, the history books. Now, Jeremy Hunt confirmed plans for 12 low tax investment zones across the UK in a scaled back version of Liz Truss's plan. Apparently, they'll receive £80 million of flexible support from the government over five years. So it won't be their government split between tax incentives and investments such as skills and infrastructure aimed at attracting companies. Now, Hunt has like them to the 12 new canary wharfs in reference to the regeneration of london docklands under the conservative government way back when in the 1980s in england the proposed zones will be in liverpool greater manchester south yorkshire west yorkshire tees valley and the west midlands all of which have directly elected mayors which links into what we spoke about in part one as well as the new east midlands and northeast uh, mayoralities which are due to be created next year anything to see here michael i think it's a severe downgrade from the trust version and vision that she had in mind for these kind of inland free ports where uh, 
There's all sorts of tax cuts and advantages on offer. I think it's a bit of a retread of something that's been announced already. The fact that they're called innovation zones rather than investment zones, I think that uh, is, is a little bit different. They're all in very metropolitan areas. They're all really consolidating economic power in existing hotspots. They enshrine, it's fair to say, uh, a few very important economic points about the positive impacts of universities, which I think doesn't particularly address the kind of discontent about that, that gave us Brexit and the, the falling of the Red Wall in the last election in places like Stoke and Burnley, which felt hard done to, that places like Manchester get all the money. Mm. You know, in fact, it's consolidating, you know, where, where graduates have new opportunities. Now, every bit of economic sense will tell you that that's where the opportunities are going are to come from. But uh, yeah, it's not going to go down too well in those sorts of places. Steve Steve Broomhead, who's well known, he's the um, he's the chief executive of Warrington Council. He he speaks very much about you know that uh, leveling up must be beyond just the major cities. It must be the bits in between as well. Because he's the chief exec of Warrington Council. That's now, right. Yeah, he? yeah, he was. Um, he, he's been heavily involved in this world for a long time. Huge fan of uh, rugby league as well. Um, now, I recently received my council tax bill from Chorley Council. Uh, I don't think it was unfair. It went up. You expected it to. Yeah, um, mine too. But uh, cash-strapped Thurrock Borough Council and the London Borough of Croydon have been put into special measures. This is what The Guardian said. After a series of failings, financial failings, pushed them into effective bankruptcy. Now, councils in Slough and Liverpool have faced similar challenges. Sky News did a story last week, which I saw, which said that two Surrey councils spend more on interest and paying back loans than they do on services like transport and social care, which is really worrying. Anything to see here, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a lot of local government finances in absolute tatters. Um, the councils have put up the maximum that they're able to without having to go to a referendum, and the government recognised that due to inflationary pressures, they had to, and they, they did withdraw that um, requirement to go to a referendum above a certain percentage level. Um, I think a lot of finances are hanging by a thread. The ability to be able to put together services. I mean, when I was working at Stockport, some of the statistics that, uh, that our councillors would be reading in reports about services that they had to cut and where they would raise money from was absolutely terrifying. And the biggest amount of money that a local council spends is on adult social care, effectively running old people's homes. But the numbers of looked after children who are coming into each area is, is going up all the time. And that's uh, and they are statutory responsibilities. They have to do them before all else. So slowly you get things that get chipped away and shaved and salami sliced around the edges, things like library services, swimming pools, leisure centers, so and, and filling in potholes and highways, stuff like that. And again, Jeremy Hunt didn't say in his budget, yeah, we're addressing the whole issue of local government finance. He mentioned swimming pools and potholes, almost like the government was solving those problems, but without giving local government the ability to solve them independently, properly and strategically. What are you going to find though? Um, local um, local governments are going to come under a lot of pressure because of their budgets and their finances, and they are. I listened to PMQs last week and uh, a Conservative MP stood up and said uh, to Rishi Sunak, you know, did he agree with him that it was outrageous that certain cabinet members at Westminster Council had agreed a 45% pay rise? I looked into that story and it's it is true i mean their their allowances are a lot less than some other local councils in uh london but uh, the bottom line is they've given themselves an increase which equates 
at the top end to 45%. And I think that's what's going to get weaponized. Um, something we've got in common, Michael, is that, um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we've both got uh, wives whose opinions we trust. I, uh, I always go to Mrs. M for her opinion. And I came up with an idea in a week and I said, I've got an idea. I said, tell me what you think about it. I'm thinking of a section called who is the thickest MP? And she said, no, she said, that's, that's not you, Chris, you know, um, you, you're not that sort of person. I said, oh, I, I won't do that. I said, but it's about that. I said, so I don't want to demonize MPs by calling them thick, but there are some truly dreadful MPs who do themselves no favors at all. So here's three from last week. This is cross party as well. Richard Bergen. Oh, uh, Dick Bergen. Labor, the gift that keeps on giving. Labour MP for East Lees. He had his bill blocked calling for the public to give the, uh, you know, the, he wanted the public to be given the power to call a general election when the majority have lost faith in the government. I mean, absolutely wasted time. What's wrong with that? I sound like great idea. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, dreadful idea. Socialism. Uh, yeah. Um, so Stoke on Trent MP Jonathan Gullis, a Conservative, who implied in a Channel Four interview that Gary Lineker has called Red Wall voters in the North and the Midlands Nazis and racist bigots, which he didn't, of course. No. Uh, and uh, Andrew Bridgen, who is uh, who had the Conservative whip removed from him for comparing the coronavirus vaccine. To the Holocaust, he gave a speech in Parliament. It's interesting because on social media, literally, it was empty, playing to empty galleries. Um, and uh, and so, so you know, I was thinking to myself, so I don't want to call these people thick. Uh, incidentally, I thought... You just did, though. Yeah, well, I, I may have implied um, that they were thick, but Mrs M said I can't call them thick, so I'm not going to. And I'm not calling Labour's MP Lucy Powell thick, but I didn't I didn't think well, she did herself. she's not. No, she's not. She's clever. She's, she's hugely clever. But I don't think her decision to compare the government's treatment of Gary Lineker to something from, quote, Putin's Russia. I don't think that was very uh, sensible. Um, now, I'm all for freedom of speech, um, but these trio of MPs that I mentioned earlier, they could never be confused with the three wise men, could they? <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, a general rule of thumb, by the way, is don't evoke the Nazis in an argument unless it's literally about Nazis. So let's go on our section on manoeuvres. Who do you think is on manoeuvres this week? Well, obviously, this podcast is going out on Wednesday and everyone's going to be talking about Boris Johnson. Uh, he's going to be putting his case to the Privileged Committee on why he thinks he didn't mislead Parliament. I mean, the sanctions are huge for him if he, if he loses. If the inquiry goes against him, it could scupper his dreams return to become Prime Minister again. That's his dream, not mine or yours. Now, I think what you need to do is keep an eye out on the seven members of the Privileges Committee. They're going to get a lot of attention this week. They consist of four Tory MPs, two Labour MPs and one SM. MP, MP as well. Now, most people will have heard of the uh, chair, the veteran, the grandee, Labour, uh, Harriet Harman, who critics have accused of already making up her mind. She tweeted actually about the whole Partygate uh, saga, I think last year. The ones I'm interested in are the other six and not all our listeners will have heard of them. Andy Carter is a Conservative MP for Warrington South, I've interviewed. Alberto Costa, uh, Alan Dorans is from the SNP. So Charles Walker, who gave that impassioned speech uh, recently about the Fuffle at the end of Liz Truss's reign in power. Yvonne, how do I pronounce her name? Fog, yeah, she's Labour and Suburnid. Sir Bernard Jenkin. Now, I think you'll see a lot of people on manoeuvres around this whole process. You're already seeing Johnson supporters on manoeuvres who are questioning the whole legitimacy of the process, even though four of this seven-strong committee are Conservatives. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I've interviewed Andy Carter a couple of times. He, he's the opposite of Scott Benton. He's low profile, understated and talented. I really rate him. Um, and when I was talking to him about Partygate, he literally said, Chris, I can't talk about it because... Um, um, some people have questioned, 
and I'm one of them as well, while the taxpayer is paying Johnson, when I think he's, you know, raked in about £5 million from his speeches. What's your take on the whole situation, Michael? Yeah, I think he's gone full Donald Trump. Um, Desperate, shameless, and his defence, it seems to be, is relying on five different planks. One, that that the inquiry is unlawful. Two that the inquiry is politically biased. So they're, you're, you're effectively doing their job for them by reading out the previous things that people have said or what their allegiances are. So they're trying to undermine and chip away at the credibility of each of the individual five members of the committee. He's bringing up some WhatsApp messages showing that he was advised that the rules weren't breached. I mean, oh, give me a break. The general assumption is, again, that at the time that the events were compliant, with the lockdown rules and that he acted in good faith. I don't think he ever acts in any other faith than the faith in his own ego and importance. So I think he's banged to rights. Everybody knows it. He knows it. And when he stood up in parliament and threw Allegra Stratton under the bus for laughing about cheese and wine parties, when they were mocking up that press conference about how they defend the indefensible, he claimed at that time that he was appalled when he saw the footage. And then he went on to say that rules were obeyed at all times. We have photographic evidence that he knows that's not true. Now, if he's the person that made the rules, and he's been found already by like the Sue Gray inquiry and others, and he's taken a fine voluntarily. Yeah. yeah. He's banged to rise. He was flat out lying. Definitely not our mate. <laughs> and on that, let's go for a break. Welcome back to the third and final part of this week's episode of Northern Spin. And Chris, we've got a th- we've got a third sponsor. So it's a big Northern Spin welcome to Red Flag Alert. Yeah, absolutely. Delighted to get them on board. Uh, Red Flag Alerts help businesses use data, <coughs> use data insights to grow revenue and protect. Um, <coughs> absolutely. You know, there must be something there in the air because... Uh, suddenly got a, a little frog in my throat there. So, no, Red Flag Alerts help businesses use data insights to grow revenue and protect their company from financial risk. Red Flag Alerts are trusted by thousands, literally thousands of businesses, from large FTSE 100 financial services organisations to small and medium-sized enterprises. And Nicola Headlam, who we've heard from before, is their chief economist. Now, uh, what have you been up to, Michael? Well, I've been back to Rome, fourth time. I've done work trips there, where I interviewed the head of a TV station, which was... Very bizarre. Um, I've done history. I've done religious trips, a family trip. This one was just the two of us, uh, Rachel and I, and 30 other people or so for a riotous weekend celebrating my good friend Michael Stevenson's 60th birthday party. And the highlight for me was taking in the capital derby, Lazio against Roma, which was absolutely intense. And as you would expect from with one of the teams managed by Jose Mourinho, an absolutely dreadful game of football. But anyway, I've uh, I've decided that I now want to devote my later years to being more Stanley Tucci. The coolest people on the planet are Italian pensioners. They have balance, style, grace, and appreciation of fine things. And that, for the rest of my life, is what I want to devote myself to. Well, and I'm sure you can achieve it. And podcasting, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so what have you been up to? 
Um, I've been busy, actually. Um, hosted a panel discussion at ProMaster's Green Tech Conference last week. This is interesting. I think Green Tech's where it's going. Um, there was a big report yesterday about sustainability and climate as well, and we're just not getting a grip of it. And uh, we were looking at various initiatives to try and uh, tackle that through green technology. I want to get your take of a sad story that we mentioned before in a previous pod about the demise of Oldham Coliseum. We spoke about it uh, before, 135 years old. It's a venue. It's steeped in history. It's going to close at the end of the month because of uh, funding shortfall despite a campaign to save it Maxine Peake was heavily involved a sad day yeah it is it's terrible for Oldham I think those kind of civic institutions that give a place self-confidence and pride being allowed to to close like that I think um, obviously as a, when the dust settles on it people will be held responsible it's had issues in its leadership it's not had a stable leadership for a long time they've had a real high turnover of chief executives they have been consistently reliant on the arts council funding to keep going so i think they needed some other alternative plan which they've not been able to put together um so yeah i think it's desperately sad for oldham and i, I kept expecting jeremy hunt to come with a you know a last minute plan to save it in the budget because it's got all all the right attributes that it's you know in a in a left-behind town, but a, an institution that people cherish, but no. But I look at um, Chorley Little Theatre in in my beloved Chorley as well, and and they really they they are less reliant, you know, on uh, on public funding, and they've run it as a business because that face going out of business several yeah. times, and it's just a great. I'm going to call it a little theatre because it's called the little theatre. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a great. That, yeah. but, but that it's is the it, fabric it, of the community. Yeah, it's a slightly different business model, but yeah. Whatever way you look at it, it's it's really bad. So anyway, um, culturally though, this week I'm going to see an old university of friend friend of mine, Tracy Oberman. She's performing in the Merchant of Venice at home at uh, in Manchester. She's playing Shylock, Shakespeare play, of course. Mm -hmm. Shylock, obviously written as a man, but it's set in East London in the 1930s against the backdrop of Mosley's black shirts. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. Tracy, of course, was in EastEnders, but. Uh, much much better than that. Book-wise, I'm reading Very Bad People by Patrick Alley about the incredible work of Global Witness. It's the inside story about how they took on corruption. They helped to end wars in West Africa, Cambodia. They inspired at least two Hollywood films, Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio and Lord of War with um, Nicolas Cage about a Ukrainian um, arms dealer. And yeah, they've done they've done incredible work. It's an absolute roller coaster, and so I'm working on a couple of incredible deep dive stories at the moment. And tales like this really give me the fire to pursue it when the going gets tough in the face of all sorts of unreasonable pressures. Favorite, favorite, favorite Nick Cage story? Uh, favorite Nick Cage film? Have you got one? I'll give you mine. Con Air, great film, classic. Mm, Everyone's got a favorite. Everyone's probably got Moonstruck. Right. Yeah and what else was i going to say yeah yeah the rich and powerful will use any means possible to stop you reporting about what they're up to so yes i'm really enjoying very bad people yeah so um, any other cultural recommendations yeah well it's 20 years since the invasion of iraq so i've been listening to that it's one of those things that you've been listening to what 
Well, I've been listening to the rest of politics um, with uh, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. I mean, obviously, Alistair Campbell was uh, was right front and centre of it in his role um, with Tony Blair at the time. But um, I've been so listening was to Rory that. Stewart. He was a governor of a province of Iraq. Yeah, well, he he and what was interesting, he listened to the podcast, and um, you know, Stewart is really holding him to account, and uh, he even used the F word, Did which is you know, I'm not a big fan of it, but mm-hmm. in this context, in this context, I thought it was uh, it was fair enough. It just makes you think, though, is that 20 years ago, you remember where you were um, when we went through. Iraq, when we went to a war with Iraq. Um, on a light note, I went what, did, to the, what did you think at the time? Did you support the invasion like most people did? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I look back on Robin Cook's speech that he gave at the time and what Claire Short said at the time, and I didn't realise just how how clever and brave and, you know, they were standing up for their principles at the time. Robin Cook's speech has stood the test of time. I think at the time I looked at it and it was all to do with this 40 minutes, uh, sorry, 45 minutes, you know, this warning and was it, was it sexed up, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I probably had reservations, but I probably on the, um, uh, on the balance of probability thought it was probably the right thing to do. Would we do it again? Would I recommend do it again? No. And I think, I think uh, Tony Blair would say the same. Uh, what I would say, and this is what comes across in a lot of the podcasts I'm listening to, people look at it um, with uh, hindsight, the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, and, of course they do. And, and, and what they were doing, they were preventing these weapons inspectors going in. It means Adam Hussein was preventing them going in. So we didn't know what he had at his disposable. It was only after when we had the regime changed that we could see it. What The other thing that was interesting is how the UK tried to keep the UK, the US um, and George Bush especially, you know, because George Bush... He wasn't the, you know, the warmonger that everyone said that he was. Dick Taney was. Mm. Um, and that's what's interesting. And uh, that's a really interesting insight, I thought. On a lighter note, I do like to go to the cinema and I watch the uh, latest Lily James film, What's Love Got to Do With It? Now, this is a really, really good film, actually. It's a rom-com. It explores the issues of arranged marriages, um, but it does it in a really sort of comedic way. It looks at the different approaches to love and marriage between Western and Pakistani cultures, but it throws at real society questions as well. The memorable part, even beyond the film, was that uh, as we walked in, there was this woman at the back of the cinema in a t- on a really, really loud voice, like Dom Jolly, was shouting at uh, the person who was sitting in her seat, saying she paid for this seat and she needed to go. And then the staff waded in. They held up playing the film to sort this out, even though there were probably 12 empty seats in the cinema. Um, I don't understand some people Which sometimes. Was that? It was at Middlebrook. It was View at Middlebrook. Right. Well, my advice to you then is don't go to Middlebrook. Yeah, but I mean, that's to say that this woman won't go to other cinemas. Um, You should go to an independent cinema, such as um, the Light Cinema, which they have in Bolton. Have you been to that one? I don't think I have. No, I don't think I have. They're really good. They've got one in Stockport as well. And it's one of the best and most comfortable cinematic experiences I've ever had. By choice, I tend to go to our single screen cinema, which has probably got a similar ambience, chilly little theatre that we've got in Marple, where they just show um, one film. For, and sometimes if it's really successful, three weeks at a time. Um, anyway, you won't get this, but my other cultural recommendation for you is a new shop opened on King Street in Manchester called Microdot. It's a veritable oasis of musical delights. It's curated by a designer called Brian Cannon, the man who designed some of the best album covers of Britpop in the 90s. He's a really interesting guy, great stories, great portfolio, and a brilliant collection of musical artefacts. So that's it for episode six of season three of Northern Spin. We're on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button if you do so. 
Follow up on Twitter at at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. To our sponsors, all three of them, Oscar Technology, Lily Shippen, and Red Flag Alert. Thanks, as ever, to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. And as always, my name is Happy Clappy Chris McGuire. <laughs>